Next up, Campaign Beat, a weekly political analysis program produced by Montana Public Radio. Campaign Beat is hosted by Sally Mock and features Lee Newspaper State News Bureau Chief Holly Michaels and Rob Saldine of the University of Montana's Mansfield Center and Political Science Department. Here's Sally. Rob, we've been musing about twin primary candidates who would begin criticizing their primary opponents, not just the candidate they might face in the general election. And this week, one of the three Democratic candidates in the Western Congressional District, Tom Winter, went after Democrat Cora Newman for using an out-of-state consulting firm, Global Strategy Group, because of work that firm did for Amazon in its effort to keep its workers from unionizing. And here's part of what Winner said on social media. Hey, look, if you're going to run campaigns that claim to support working Montanans and fighting for their votes and their rights, honestly, it's not that hard. You just allow your campaigns to unionize if they would like, and you only work with people who support unions as well. And... Rob Winner is hoping to convince Democratic voters that he's a better ally to workers than Cora Newman. Right. You know, Sally, campaigns typically have a lot of these attempts to draw distinctions and highlight differences. And this Democratic primary actually has been pretty quiet on that front, at least until now. And Winter's campaign hasn't gained a whole lot of traction. So I'm I'm not surprised to see him uh, getting a little bit more aggressive here. It also strikes me, though, that at least in one sense, Winner is on to something here in his effort to speak to a constituency, the working class, that used to be absolutely central to the Democratic Party, but is one that they've been hemorrhaging support in in recent years. And if the party is going to be competitive again in states like Montana, it's got to figure out a way to bring some of those voters back into the fold. So Winner at least seems to recognize that or be playing to that here. But it's not clear that old school labor politics is necessarily where the action is anymore. There's a good case to be made that the Democratic Party's problem in places like Montana isn't so much a failure to appeal to these voters on economic grounds, but rather that the party is culturally out of step, that the party, at at least at the elite level, in terms of uh, many of the party's most visible elected leaders, in terms of donors, in terms of the political professionals who run campaigns, that the party is, through that lens, perceived as being coastal, is perceived as being obsessed with identity issues and pronouns, and is perceived as projecting a kind of sneering, accusatory condescension toward anyone who isn't in lockstep agreement with that outlook, and that they do all this from a place of relative wealth and social prestige and privilege. So to the extent that's true, uh, you know, that's an enormous challenge for the party. And unionizing campaign staffers, I'm not sure. I I guess it's a way Winter can try to distinguish himself. But in this larger context, I'm just not sure that's going to go too far in speaking to the real problem that Democrats have increasingly had in places like Montana. Holly, there is another reason Winter is going after Newman. She's leading and fundraising among the Democratic candidates. Yeah, you're right, Sally. She is, and by a pretty significant amount, too. For the last quarter, which are the campaign finance reports that we just saw, Newman took in a bit more than $400,000. And over the race, she's raised more than $1.1 million. Uh, she spent about 160000 over the last quarter. And we talked last time about you know some of the first television ads in the race. Some of that went toward that. She still has about eight hundred and seventy-eight thousand left in cash on hand, so I think you know fair to say we're going to see that money deployed coming up pretty soon with the June primary. 
Next in the fundraising numbers, Monica Trinnell, she brought in about $253,000 in the last quarter. And you over the race, that puts her at about 673000 And she's spending pretty significantly, too. You know, we saw a TV ad from her. She spent about $400,000 in the race. And then Winner, like you said, is lagging pretty far behind those two. He, in the last quarter, raised about $42,000. He's just shy of $95,000 for the whole race. And that includes a $10,000 loan to himself. And he spent about 80000 So got some pretty... Um, a wide variety of fundraising in the Democratic primary. But none of those Democrats, Holly, can match the kind of money that Republican Ryan Zinke has raised so far. Yeah, no, Zinke is in the millions. You know, he ended the last quarter, too, still with $1.2 million in the bank. So he's brought in a lot. He's spent a lot. And he still has a lot around to spend. We haven't seen a lot of that as much. You know, we've talked about those TV ads for Zinke, you know, looking through his reports, he spent about 160000 on digital advertising and then spent money on polling, but we haven't really seen TV ads yet. And he's, you know, far away ahead from the next closest in that Republican primary. That's State Senator Al Olszewski. He raised about 89000 over the last quarter. He's loaned himself 175000 and for the race, he's at about 678000 Then we got Mary Todd, who's a pastor in Kalispell. She's raised just about 38000 over the last quarter. So Yozinki is really pulling away from the pack here. And I think part of it is he's run before. He's done these races. He's been Secretary of the Interior. And that comes with a lot of also professional connections he's made since leaving office that shows up in things like he's raised about $360,000 from political action committees, that sort of thing. So kind of makes sense that he is the front runner in the money race. Well, Rob, he is the front runner, but he's also the only Republican candidate who didn't bother to show up for a recent debate in Kalispell, and that debate was sponsored by Flathead County Republicans. Right, and we're seeing this a lot among Republican politicians, Sally, and it strikes me as an extension of a, a, a broader effort to avoid taking any risks. And so increasingly, they don't interact much with traditional media or even their constituents unless they're pre-screened. It used to be they were reliant on traditional media because that was the only way to get their message out. But now with social media and whatnot, they can do it themselves. So why take the risk? You know, one particular moment when this really struck me, Sally, was when you and I were at Trump's 2018 rally at the Missoula airport in support of Matt Rosendale's Senate campaign against Tester. The event was over, and we were outside waiting for a bus in the cordoned-off area that's only accessible to media people and the rally's organizers. And, and here comes Rosendale and his wife and a few staffers just ripping past us, making a beeline for a waiting SUV. Then seconds later, Gloria Borger from CNN and her camera crew sprint by us in hot pursuit. They, they were too late. Rosendale and his entourage jumps into the SUV and they were off. But I remember Borger coming back and just being exasperated and saying that she'd never seen a candidate run away from the media at his own campaign rally. And, and to me, that little episode just really exemplified this new reality in which Republican politicians are increasingly skipping debates. They're increasingly avoiding media interviews, unless it's with a you know, friendly talk radio host or something. They're increasingly not doing town halls. They increasingly aren't doing events that aren't scripted in advance with screened audiences. 
As for these debates, there's no rule that candidates have to do them. It's just a norm. Unless there's some pushback from voters, I think we could be seeing a lot more of this. Well, I think that's key is whether there's pushback from voters or voters just don't care. The four Republicans who did attend, Mitch Hoyer, Matt Jetty, Al Oshevsky, and Mary Todd, all support Trump, and three of the four wrongly assert that the 2020 election wasn't valid. Here's what Mary Todd had to say about that. So yes, I think this election was stolen, and who in their right mind would allow a baby to be stolen and not try to get it back? Rob Todd had other conspiracy theories, but I wonder how many Republican voters agree with her. Well, right. I mean, you have to think quite a few. Otherwise, they wouldn't be talking about it so much. And, you know, that clip does, in a way, kind of sum up the central message of the Republican Party right now. The election was stolen by Biden. I suppose if you really believe that, then all these efforts that we've seen, you know, back in late 2020 and early 2021 to fraudulently steal it back in the process of Congress's role in counting electoral votes or disputing the slates of electors sent by the states, well, that makes some sense. Lots of people were on board for that. And, you know, if that doesn't work, why, then you can try to use violence to keep Trump in power. That didn't work either. Uh, But even now, over a year later, this is still somehow the animating force in GOP politics. Holly, Matt Jetty was the only one of the Republican candidates who said the election was fair, and he also supports wearing masks and getting vaccinated against COVID. Here's what he said. I lost friends to it. Critique me all you want. At the end of the day, I'm not going to throw you red meat like other candidates up here so you can clap for him. He also said, Holly, he will not support Ryan Zinke if Zinke gets the nomination. That was interesting. Yeah, this I mean, it's a pretty interesting forum to listen to. And just listening to Jetty there and what you and Rob were talking about with Mary Todd, these are really hard to cover because you get these sound bites and then need to find space in a story that fits you know within a reader's attention span to kind of fact check what candidates are saying. And this debate sounds like it presented a lot of challenges there. I think it's pretty interesting to hear Jetty call some of these false claims red meat for an audience up in the flathead. You know, it's a location in the state where a lot of these false claims about COVID, like you talked about, and the security of elections have found the most success in taking root. Getting into Jetty saying he couldn't support Zinke, he has a lot of information about that actually on his campaign website. He talks about when he heard Zinke was running, that was actually the reason he decided to move from Florida back to Montana, specifically to run against Zinke. In his eyes, he's saying what Zinke is representing what's wrong with the political system. He's citing money that Zinke and his family have earned off the oil and gas industry. And we reported late last year from Zinke's financial disclosure information. It does show through his consulting firm, he's done work for oil companies Jetty also went after Zinke for something we hear Democrats criticize him for often, which is his time spent out of state. And Jetty saying you know, Zinke doesn't really understand regular Montanans anymore. He's you know wealthy and spends time in California a lot is what Jetty's getting at. And he also questions Zinke's patriotism, which is pretty interesting. And when he's doing that, he's citing investigations into Zinke's actions when he was Secretary of the Interior. You know, anytime we write about that, Zinke's campaign will push back pretty hard about, you know, saying he hasn't been found to have done anything wrong from these investigations, but still there's an amount of them that's worth noting. 
And then Jetty also just, you know, generally criticizes Zinke for what he is saying is rhetoric that's dividing Montanans and saying that, you know, at this point in our political trajectory, that's a pretty dangerous thing to be doing in Jetty's eyes. Certainly the Western congressional race, both on the Democrat and Republican sides, is uh, heating up and getting more and more interesting to follow as the days go on. Rob, another law passed by the last legislature has been put on hold by a district court judge while a lawsuit challenging it plays out. And this is a law that would have prevented transgender Montanans from changing the gender on their birth certificate unless they've had gender-affirming surgery. And this may be one of the most intrusive laws passed by the last session. Yeah, probably so, Sally. You know, it's also one of the big culture war issues right now, and and we can see it playing out in various ways all across the country. You know, this particular ruling itself was centered on what strikes me as something of a technicality. The judge, as I understand it, said that the law was too vague. Given that problem right out of the gate, he didn't even get to the point of considering the constitutionality of the law's substance. So the vagueness issue is uh, presumably something the legislature could fix if it wanted to, and then we'd be back to uh, the larger issue of whether the law is constitutional. But of course, as you allude to, Sally, the other thing that's just really notable here is that this is yet another court ruling that's blocked a law that came out of the last legislative session, and we've had a lot of these at this point. We certainly have another busy week in politics. Holly and Rob, thank you. I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Sally. Thank you, Sally. You've been listening to Campaign Beats, a weekly political analysis program produced by Montana Public Radio. Campaign Beat features Rob Saldine of the University of Montana's Mansfield Center and Political Science Department, Lee Newspaper State News Bureau Chief Holly Michaels, and hosted by Sally Mock. Join us next week for more analysis of Montana politics.